just want you to notice uh, what's happening here this morning. Acts 2.42 says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that's what we're doing this morning in line with 2,000 years of following the way of Christ. Um, I just love that our, our elders are stepping up and participating and leading and um, doing it beautifully. So I want you to notice. So we're going to start in 1 Peter 2.11 2, today. Um, and I'll just say I pray that you hear the word of God, that whatever is true and good in this will remain with you. Listen carefully to this word from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. So it may be helpful for you to keep your Bibles open through the message, because we'll be referring to the verses by number uh, as we go through. So this section of chapter 2 strikes me as an abrupt change of direction for Peter. Last week, we heard about God's presence with us and our position and our purpose in Christ as chosen people 
as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And in verse 10, he finishes that section with, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a triumphant feeling. All this is ours in Christ, thanks be to God. And why all this glorious assurance about our royal position as the chosen sons and daughters of God? Well, Peter's about to open us up to some very practical instruction about what the new life looks like living as the royal people of God. And we'll see in the rest of chapter 2 and much of chapter 3 that he describes this new lifestyle with certain key features, with service, submission, and suffering. Let's start at the beginning. Verse 11, Peter urges his dear friends to live as foreigners and exiles in the world, abstaining or distancing themselves from sinful desires. Don't adopt the values of the present culture. Instead, hold on to the values of the holy nation to which you really belong. Well, which values are those? Peter's about to tell us. But first he tells us why. Because holy living shines God's glory into dark places. Peter remembered Jesus' teaching, I'm sure. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So this whole section of chapter 2 just opposes the spirit of the world in Peter's day, and it opposes the spirit of the world in our day just as much. Because, of course, human nature hasn't changed at all. Human nature is to seek our own good, our own power, our own honor, to seek ease and prosperity and the things that we want. Everyone wants to exercise his rights. Everyone wants to get her own way. But the way of Jesus is the opposite. Peter says something both countercultural and frankly unusual in verse 16. Live as free people. Live as slaves. Live as God's slaves. So it sounds a little bit like a contradiction. But what can it mean except that living as God's slaves in some way makes us free people? So freedom in the present world most often refers to a freedom from restraint or freedom from responsibility that allows us to do what we want. Expressed in the American ideal, most people understand this as freedom to secure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for our own self-interest. But freedom in Christ is something entirely different. It's freedom first from bondage to sin. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he spoke of setting captives free. And in that is the idea of both salvation from the penalty of sin and also from the ongoing slavery to sin in our natures. So freedom in Christ is freedom from sinful selfishness. Being free, we are able to love and serve God as we were intended as we were made to do and to submit and serve and suffer for others 
And there you have my three points. The gospel makes us free to submit, to serve, and to suffer for the Lord's sake. So let's look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, says Peter. Now our favorite commentator, Clowney, argues that it's not really the institution, but to the individual human beings. Because human beings matter to God. Human beings are made in God's image. And Paul writes the same instructions in in Titus chapter 3, but he adds, show true humility towards all people. And Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. He has the same attitude in mind, doesn't he? Christians are called to submit their will to the will of the other person. Think about how countercultural that is in our day. Well, how can you do that? How can you submit your will to the will of the other? It's otherworldly. You must know that your life is secure. You must know that your life is secure in God to do that. Because you can only give up your rights if you know that the just judge of the universe is securing your rights for you. The just judge of the universe knows you and loves you and will make everything work out for your good in the end. That's what Jesus trusted. Now, I want to say a few more words about submission to authority in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Many nations throughout our history have claimed to exercise power in God's name. And the institutional church has often encouraged the use of civil power to get its own way. But the clear teaching of Scripture is that the kingdom of God expands by the exercise of Holy Spirit power in the human heart, not by the exercise of civil power in the state. We must never put our trust and our hope in the state. Christians are citizens of two countries, but they don't have equal authority over us. We are first slaves to God, who rules over both the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the earth. And we submit to the institutions of government for the sake of God, for his purposes and his glory. Government is given by God for good purposes that are stated clearly in verse 14. The punishment of evil and the promotion of good. And even corrupt government often restrains the evil that would otherwise boil over from human hearts. There's more to be said about Christian opposition to unjust government, but not now. Suffice it to say that good government does not save souls, and bad government does not hinder the sovereign purposes of God. Next, we'll move to the special submission of servants. Live as servants of God, or slaves of God, we're told in verse 16. By respecting everyone, loving the family of believers, fearing God, and honoring the emperor. It seems we serve and honor the Lord by humbly submitting and loving others, submitting to and loving others. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. This principle carries forward to household servants in the following verses. And I think it applies to each of us in our roles at work, in our roles in the church, in our roles in our families, in our other relationships. Peter simply assumes that Christians will offer wholehearted, faithful service with integrity and humility. Christians serve others in reverent fear of God, not fear of men. Paul is also very clear on this point in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working as for the Lord and not for men. Now, if we are faithless or lazy or corrupt in our work and we suffer for it, how does that honor God? But if we do good and yet suffer unjustly and we endure it, Peter says that is commendable before God. Verse 20 suggests that patient endurance of unjust suffering is to our credit and will be commended by God. Peter's almost quoting the words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 6, 32 through 36, where he says, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. When Christians suffer unjustly and they return evil for evil, they remain locked in the ways of the world. But when Christians suffer unjustly and return good for evil, we can break the power of sin and break the power of darkness. We show that we are not of this world. We belong to another master and another kingdom. And when we willingly submit to others, we show that our service is not ultimately coerced, but voluntary. And our humiliation is not forced, but chosen for the Lord's sake. We also demonstrate to the world that our confidence in God's judgment and in his reward is our source of power. Our confidence in God's judgment and his reward is how we can act this way. So Christ has made us free to submit and free to serve and now free to suffer. Verse 21 begins with, to this you were called. Now up to this point in 1 Peter, all talk of our calling has been calling to glory. The special chosen people, God's elect, the royal priesthood, a special possession of God. But there is another calling for every Christian. One sometimes glossed over in our culture and in our church culture. Peter says we are called to humble submission and to service, to unjust punishment, and to patient endurance of punishment, of suffering rather. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus was unequivocal about submission, about service, and about suffering in his teaching. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself 
take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus repeatedly calls on his followers to count the cost of discipleship before following him. Luke 14, any of you who does not give up anything he has, I'm sorry, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It gets even worse. In Matthew 24, 9, he says to his disciples, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Yet millions of people in our country have been duped into believing that they will live lives of comfort and ease, showered with material blessings from heaven if they pray a prayer asking for Jesus to become their personal savior. I fear they ignore the teaching of Jesus and listen only to what they wish to hear. It's the very design of God that his people enter into suffering and sacrifice for others so that the world may see and respond to the gospel. It's the way of Jesus. There's no other path for his people. Francis Chan says the call to follow Christ is the call to joyfully endure suffering in this life for the promise of eternal blessing in the next. He tells of listening to underground church leaders in China tell stories of persecution and imprisonment. And then, immediately after telling the stories, they go to prayer, and they cry out to God, saying, take us to the most dangerous places. I want to suffer for you. Please. I want to be counted worthy to suffer and die for your name. He says, if you have a group like that, how are you going to stop them? That's the way the church is meant to be, an unstoppable force, ready to take a hit and go right back into battle. But Jesus is far more than just an example to the believers who follow him. He is our sin bearer. He is our atoning sacrifice. Verses 22 through 25 are nearly word-for-word quotations from Isaiah 53, some of which we heard in our conversation or our confession this morning. In this great prophetic image from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant suffers unjustly, but willingly and humbly for the Lord's sake. It ends with verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus bore the sin of many. Verse 24 tells us one of the astonishing purposes of that. So that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness. Now Peter just told us that Jesus was righteous. That he was holy and righteous. He committed no sin, the text tells us. But how do we live for righteousness? Well, here's the gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience and righteousness that we should have lived. And he died the death of a rebellious 
and disobedient sinner that we should have died. But through the mystery of faith and of the new birth, God gives us not only a pardon from sin, but he gives us a new life in which he places on us the righteousness of Christ. There's a double substitution. We get his righteousness. He gets our sin. It's a complete switch. That's why the Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that, my friends, is a gift worth paying any price, any cost. All that is required to receive this gift is stated in verse 23. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's faith. That's saving faith. Trust. Entrust yourself to God's care through Jesus Christ. Here's one practical takeaway from this passage. When you are confronted with difficulty and suffering, or your will is crossed, and you are asked to give up your rights or sacrifice for another, practice this one thing. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Rest in the gospel truth that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are secure. What is required of you is merely to entrust yourself to Jesus, to trust and obey. No matter what becomes of you in this earthly realm, where we are really strangers and exiles, God can be trusted to judge justly. He is the sovereign ruler of all creation. He will work everything out for the good of those he loves all the way to eternity. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord, you taught us to pray. You taught us to pray your kingdom come and your will be done. This is your will that we entrust ourselves to you. God, give us grace. Give us power. Give us strength through the life of Christ in us to trust and obey. And thank you for the word from Peter from the encouragement of the Spirit and for the love of God to each one of us here. Amen. We are going to move right from that into communion.